So uh, how many of you guys remember Fresh Prince of Bel-Air? Anybody? Remember how it starts? Somebody, go ahead. Hit me. Yeah, in West Philadelphia, born and raised, right? Okay, I'm going to show you a little video here. So just get your Carlton, uh, you know, and, and all that, like, in your mind. And uh, here's a little video for you. Someone who's written a story here is a long one. Um, it says, I'm, an, I'm a newly born-again Christian and would like to share my story of salvation with you. I was born in West Philadelphia and also raised there. I spent most of my days playing basketball on a playground, but also chilling out and relaxing. But then one day, a couple of guys who were up to no good started making trouble in my living area. I ended up getting into a fight, which terrified my mother. As a result, she sent me away from West Philadelphia to the most peaceful area of Bel Air. Oh, okay. Fresh. Okay. And I think, yeah, I think there's some, there's some Mongolians on the system. <laughs> Stephen says, growing up on the mean streets of West Philadelphia, I never dreamed that I would even be able to own TV equipment to view a channel such as yours. What made this all possible for me was the loving embrace of my auntie stationed in Bel Air. It was there that I first caught a glimpse of your channel and knew from that moment on that my circle of trusted faces had grown substantially. Upon one of my m many visits back to West Philadelphia before the recession hit, I visited the playground where I spent most of my days shooting some basketball, but also just chilling out and relaxing. The, I don't think that story is genuine. I think the guy is a clown. He's a joker. He's mm. been sending the material to all the programs. All right, okay, well, let's delete him. Okay. And we'll permanently delete him from the... Uh, because from the list. Apparently, the story is, you know, what he's been sending through is the story of the Prince of Bel-Air, the, the black guy. Oh, yes, I, I know, yes, yes. yes. You know, but right. he just wraps it up in a way to make it look like it's a true sure. story. Okay, well, that's fine. I only read a fraction of it. <laughs> All right. Getting quite good, actually, at, uh, at yeah. getting rid of the rubbish. Okay, please pray for my cousin Carlton and my uncle Phil, who have both been having a very hard time finding jobs. Thank you so much, Will. So that's for Carlton and Phil. I'm still trying to figure out how to apply that, <clears throat> but it's been five years since I've made fun of Christian TV, and so now that I turned 40, I thought I can get away with it again. Um, but actually what I was thinking mainly is uh, um, this morning what we're talking about in the book of Proverbs is really decision-making in the will of God, and, and this whole idea of what does it look like to be in submission to the will of God, following God. And I think what's funny about these the kind of TV shows here, is that it, it highlights a form of um, what I would call mercenary prayer. Um, mercenary prayer is an over-reliance, over over-excitement, over-understanding um, of, of prayer as the mechanism for God's blessing, or, or a potential over-emphasis on that, um, where we really kind of are lost in the system and we just have to somehow reach God and then God will, will respond. And that might sound really strange for me to say, but the most shocking thing in Scripture for me to read are the passages in the prophets where the people of God are praying and beseeching 
and, and laying out kind of their, their emotions and their uncertainties and their fears to God, imploring and begging and, and crying out that God would answer, that God would come down, that God would hear their prayers. And, and the, great, the reason it's shocking is because God is saying, I'm not going to hear your prayers. That's not what you should be doing right now. Uh, Isaiah 58, uh, Malachi. I mean, all through the prophets, you see these passages where people are praying and God is saying, it's not, that's not what you should be doing. That's not why things are bad is because I haven't kind of moved on your behalf. I'm holding back not hearing your prayers, not wanting to hear your prayers, in some sense being offended by your prayers. And the real thing you got to understand here is that until you obey, until you are willing to follow what it is you know, where, where you're at, what it is I've already revealed to you, I cannot and I will not move on your behalf or bless you. And that's a shocking thing, isn't it? I mean, have you ever prayed and, and thought to yourself um, that God might be purposely putting a wall between himself and my prayers? That, that maybe there's something about me or my heart to where my prayers are actually a bit of a, of a noise to God? Um, to me, that's a crazy humbling, scary thought. And I think that sometimes we can fall into a pattern of thinking that, that it's, it's all about getting to God for the home run shot. You know what I mean by that? Like if life is really crazy, life is really chaotic, and if I could just get the home run hit, if I could just get God to hear me, if I could just get God to move, it would kind of fix everything. And, and I'm so desperate for the home run shot here because my life is really uh, in tatters. And so we try harder and harder and harder. And what I, I, I guess where I'm going with this is in Scripture we see an undercurrent to life and our relationship with God that says it's not always about swinging for the fences when things get really bad. Sometimes it's slowing down and backing up and realizing there's so much that God has revealed to us and that one of the first things we need to do is stop and say, God, where in my life am I going wrong or, or where do I need you to spotlight something that I'm not aware of or God, where do I need to submit? Where do I need to obey? Where do I need to kind of suffer along and follow where you would have me go? And that's kind of what we begin to see in the book of Proverbs as we're kind of moving into this is that there's a whole body of scripture that lays out for us the path. And we begin to see this language of a path and of a journey and where God would have us walk. And it's not about a one-time thing and it's not about home run swinging. It's about a long and sustained obedience to the will of God. If you'll open up to the book of Proverbs, we'll see a little bit of context in chapter 2, and then I want to read some familiar verses out of chapter 3. Proverbs 2, and then we'll kind of go into verse or chapter 3. And if you look in Proverbs 2, we'll kind of quickly read through a lot of this, and 
Proverbs 2 begins and it says this, My son, if you accept my words and store up my commands within you, turning your ear to wisdom and applying your heart to understanding, and if you call out for insight and cry aloud for understanding, and if you look for it as if for silver and search for it as for a hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom and from his mouth come knowledge and understanding and he holds victory in store for the upright. He's a shield to those whose walk is blameless. For he guards the course of the just and protects the way of his faithful ones. And then you will understand what is right and what is just and fair and every good path. For wisdom will enter your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will protect you and understanding will guard you. Wisdom will save you from the ways of wicked men, from men whose words are perverse, who leave the straight paths to walk in dark ways, who delight in doing wrong and rejoice in the perverseness of evil, whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. And so you see this kind of emergence of this idea going down to verse 20. Thus you will walk in the ways of good men, And keep to the paths of the righteous. For the upright will live in the land and the blameless will remain in it. For the wicked will be cut off from the land and the unfaithful will be torn from it. We see this kind of emergence of a dialogue about um, a choice between wisdom and folly. A choice between the right path and the crooked path of the broken path. A choice between following those who are right, who are true, and following those who are perverse or evil or bent. And, and all of Proverbs begins to break out kind of into this conversation about which decision you're going to make, which choice you're going to make, which way you're going to follow. And in that whole discussion of Proverbs, as it boils down to kind of this simple choice of one or the other, I think what, what, what is drawn to the surface is that the conversation about following God, about being with God, about the will of God for your life is not a conversation about right now. It's a conversation about my path. It's a conversation about the overarching theme of my life. It's a conversation about my paradigm or worldview for how I'm going to approach every day, how I'm going to approach every major decision, how I'm going to evaluate kind of every key influence in my life. It's a, it's a, a kind of a black and white, either or, as to how I'm going to move along and navigate life. And I think our, our kind of quick fix mentality or, or our, our sense of the urgency of now, we begin to think about God's will as being a point on the line rather than the line. A point on the line rather than the line. And, and, and we begin to think that the make or break is a point rather than the overarching trajectory or the line. And our prayers can often highlight that. God, what is the right thing right now? And we never, or, or we rarely think that maybe God doesn't care about which job but where your heart is with regard to making this decision about which job. Maybe it's not about whether to sell your house or keep your house or what you're going to do with your money, but who you're serving with your money. 
and we reduce things down to a point or a moment or an answer from God or an inkling or a leading, and we reduce it down to this point, and, and we become so focused on the point, and frankly, that's why we have a hard time understanding grace, because if we think everything reduces down to the point, if we get it wrong, we've really gotten it wrong, Right? But if we understand that it's a path and if it's a journey and it's kind of the trajectory, then we realize God cares less about the point, this one moment, as he does the balance, the trajectory, the overall kind of positioning of your heart and the humility on the line. And God could say, listen, of course you've stumbled there. You're going to have lots of places where you stumble. That's okay. I forgive you. Let's just keep... Let's keep to the path. Stay true. Stay righteous. Stay humble. Continue to acknowledge me. And it's about this journey. Does that make sense? And if that's true, if that kind of thesis of mine is true, that we overemphasize every, every now and then a point when we reach a crisis or a decision that we don't know what's going on or we're afraid, and we, we kind of reduce God's will down to points, we're going to miss the reality of the journey, and we're going to miss the significance of God's commands, and we're going to miss the significance of wisdom, and we're going to miss the significance of the Proverbs, or this book of Proverbs as a whole. And we're going to begin to overemphasize the posturing of how do we get God to answer us in that one moment when we're crying aloud for left or right, black or, or white, this or that, and we really want to overemphasize how am I going to hear God's voice in that moment? Not how am I going to hear scripture or truth or understanding and fill up on it over, over time so that I'm better and better able to hold a path. It's how do I really hear the answer to this one prayer or the one prayer that I pray every now and then when I really need God to give me a clear answer. And our program turns God more into one of those eight balls that you shake and less into a king, less into a savior, less into a God who we submit to and follow and worship, less into the desire of our heart who we chase after, less into a shepherd whose voice it is we follow. Does that make sense? So if you forward on chapter 3, we get to we get to a famous um, passage here, beginning in verse 5. Chapter 3 of Proverbs, verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make your paths straight. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and he will make your path straight. There's three things we do here before we see one thing that God does. Three things that we do before we see one thing that God does. What do we do? We trust. And I think we think first that that's a head thing, right? And then it says, well, trust in the Lord with all your heart. And we realize it's not just a head thing, it's a heart thing, but it's an internal thing. It's an internal thing. If I... I 
I've got it in my head. I've got it in my heart. I feel it. I grasp it. I, I, I'm, I'm hanging on to it. I believe it. Trust is something I believe. I want to trust God. Who here does not want to trust God? Who here would, would say, you know, of all the things someone could say of me, I really wouldn't want them to say or it wouldn't matter to me if they said, boy, that person really trusts God. That's an easy one. We all want to trust God. We would all want to be known for trusting God, but it's, it's kind of an internal thing. Listen to where it goes next. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. So our trust in God means that we have to lean into Him and not our own logic, our own rationality, our own vision, how it's breaking out, like how we see things, our sight. That we, we, we don't lean into that because it's sensical, because we can see where it's going, because it looks good, because we're enamored with it, because it's glitzy, because it promises, because someone's there calling us. Whatever is our own understanding, we don't lean there. We don't trust that. We actually, in some sense, have to remove ourselves and trust only in God. So we, we trust in the Lord with all our heart. We don't lean on our own understanding. We leave it leaning on God, which means leveraged into, which is not an internal thing anymore. It's an external posturing. I trust, therefore I lean. And if I lean, that means you have to catch me or I will fall. I'm leveraged. Does that make sense? The third thing. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Number one, lean not on your own understanding, which means lean into God. Third thing, in all your ways, acknowledge Him. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. Acknowledge means um, submit to, honor, put before, recognize, be aware of, call attention to. In all your ways, acknowledge him. How many ways? Just the big things? I developed a habit. I'm, this, is, this is a freaky thing. kind of things you don't share when you're a pastor because people start, start thinking you're weird. Um, but I'm old now. And uh, so I can get away with this kind of thing, evidently. But um, I, there was a time when I, when I strongly prayed um, I can't I don't do this anymore because my wife trusts me but I used to pray about what to wear in the morning why because in all my ways I want to acknowledge God I used to pray about where to eat for lunch why because you're silly you're too religious you're taking it too far because you don't have anything better to do because you're awkward and normal Christians wouldn't hang around. No, because I realized I have an opinion about everything. I have an opinion about everything. That doesn't mean all my opinions are equal. Like some opinions matter more, right? My opinion about um, what my girls should grow up to be like in terms of character matters a lot. 
my opinion of, of what you're wearing today doesn't really matter to me. But guess what? If you walk in front of me and say hello, I will have an opinion about how you look. Is that not true of anyone else here? Right? I have an opinion about everything. You have an opinion about everything. Guess who else has an opinion about everything? God does. I think some things matter more to him than others. He makes that clear in Scripture. But if we were to ask God's advice on anything, do you think he would reject us or say, why are you talking to me? Or, oh, that's silly. Or, you know, you're taking it too far. Or would he say, hey, I appreciate the conversation. I appreciate that you acknowledge me in everything. And, and then maybe even once in a while on something so mundane as where you're going to go to lunch, God would say, this is great stuff. You want to know why? Because I have a God appointment set up for you. And I'm going to steer you to this restaurant over that restaurant. And, and you're going to see the craziest thing happen when you walk into that restaurant and you end up seeing or meeting that person that you are going to bless or that you're going to lead to the Lord or that's going to... Um, offer you a job or by putting it in front of me I think every now and then God says um, you know what you're really smart you're really smart because by acknowledging me in everything I'm able to steer you in ways I wouldn't be able to steer you if you didn't and because I can steer you so much I can use you so much does that make sense? In all your ways, acknowledge him. It means in how you spend your money, who your friends are, where you're going to go on vacation. Everything you do is something you can put before God. And what you begin to realize is, man, it's almost like my free will is going away. My ability to choose or to say it's all about my choice is going away. And it's being replaced by and asking of and seeking out of the will of God or God's opinions in almost everything. My freedom is disappearing as I, I ask God for his opinion on more and more stuff. But what's really happening? What's really happening is your freedom is increasing. Your freedom isn't going away your independence is being surrendered for dependence. And in depending on God is when you will truly be set free. You see, if the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. is isn't just about salvation. It's also about all of life and being able to walk out and know that I'm with God and that I'm in God's will and that my life is pleasing God and that it's an act of worship and that I can celebrate my, my, my life and my decisions and my own joys and happiness and pleasure and that I'm not hiding and that I'm not posturing, but that in all of this, I'm wide open, not a, a hiding anything, not ashamed of anything, but truly free. 
And so in surrendering independence for dependence, I actually find my true freedom in my life in Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live, I live um, in the Son of God. It's, it's Galatians, it's Paul talking about what this life in Christ looks like. That it's not, hey, you gave me salvation. Pretty cool, Jesus. And now I'm on my way. It's you have resurrected me from the dead. And, and you've brought me up now that I have this new life, this resurrected life where your Holy Spirit is in me. And can guide me and can quicken me and can nurture me and can encourage me. And can even pray prayers to God on my behalf that go deeper than what my words can express. If you've ever found that verse in Romans. The Holy Spirit prays on your your behalf at a deep level beyond our our understanding of even what our our life circumstances are doing or or feeling like. Does that make sense? There's an intimacy and a relationship and a possibility that is so grand and it comes fully or most fully in dependence. And the freedom of our life in Christ emerges as we trade independence for dependence. Three things. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. I mean, um, I don't think there's ever a time we would pray to God about anything and have God say, with the right heart and with the right motive to follow the right path and have God say, quit bothering me. Quit annoying me. That's small. It's like the little child that wanted to come to Jesus and the, and the disciples are like, no, that's insignificant. We're doing adult business over here. Jesus is like, you don't get it. Um, the little children, that's, that's where the kingdom of God is at. They, they get it. That's, that's the posture of it. And they come out as if that's the most significant thing. God, what should I wear today? And the faith of a child is like... You know, let's talk about this because today is full of possibilities and I want you to lead me. I don't want to make my own decisions. What do you think we should do? And God might chuckle and go, it's not really going to matter today. But you know what? I don't know. Go with the red one. There's never a time when we lay aside our own understanding and try to have a conversation with God with the faith of a child, with this childlike wonder of possibility in this relationship and dependence where God is going to say, stop bothering me. Just like Jesus didn't say, stop bothering me with the insignificant. He said, I love what's in the heart of that child and you should be more like that child. And then it says this, uh, number three, in all your ways acknowledge him. All your ways, all your ways, all your ways. And he will make your paths straight. And he will make your paths straight. There's something about the will of God that we miss, but it's really straightforward. Um, the, The health and wealth gospel understands an aspect of Scripture, but, but then confuses it. The health and wealth gospel 
if you know what it is, it's kind of like, listen, do, it's, it's kind of like a vending machine approach. Do this and you get this. Do this and you get this. There's a, there's a do this and you get this aspect of Scripture. So the health and wealth gospel means, hey, if you just followed the, these kind of formulas and rituals and all that, God would bless you. And if God blesses you, you're going to be healthy and wealthy. And what they get right is that there is a do this and this will happen aspect of Scripture. There are two kinds of covenants in Scripture. One is called an unconditional covenant. Meaning, it doesn't matter what you do, the the promise of God, the covenant, is not conditioned on what you do. It's unconditional. And then there are conditional covenants. Meaning, if you do this, then this will happen. In uh, Deuteronomy, you see conditional covenants. I'm bringing you to the land, and if you follow me, if you obey my commands, I will take care of you, and I will bless the land, and you will live in the land, and and it'll be good. But if you reject my commands, and if you disobey my commands, I will discipline you, I will remove you from the land, I will send drought and famine, etc. So what you do, okay, conditions my response to you. There's conditional covenants. You see both of them working alongside in certain places, like David. The promise to David that he would have a son on the throne for forever was what? What kind of promise was that? Anybody? You guys aren't confident because you're mumbling. That one's unconditional. God said, I'm going to put a son of David on the throne of David. Someone in the line of David. Um, Can David mess that up? Can Israel mess that up? It's unconditional. Now here's a conditional thing. Can David mess up the blessing and the peace in his own household based on his actions in life? David's sin with Bathsheba... When Nathan comes and prophesies against David, uh, conditioned a kind of response that's much more like Deuteronomy uh, in 18 in, in those chapters that if you, if you sin and if you reek, uh, reap, dis- or reek, reap, if you bring about destruction in uh, other people's lives and in society, there's a there's a, a response that comes from that. There's a penalty from that. There's a, a ripple effect. There's a kind of a law at work here where it, it's going to, what you reap, you will sow. And David, you've killed a man. David, you've committed adultery. David, you've squandered the blessing I've given you. David, you've done this. And now your own household is going to be constantly in friction. Your sons are going to vie one against the other for power. They're going to kind of follow in your, your footsteps that way. You, one of your sons is even going to challenge you. So you see right alongside one another an unconditional covenant and promise and a conditioned one. Does that make sense? Why do I bring that up? Because if we don't understand good theology, we lead to a really confused 
uh, form of Christianity or we confuse churches. And so in the New Testament, we get an unconditional promise of salvation with Jesus. Meaning, if we just put our faith and our trust in Christ, we will be saved. Salvation is by faith through grace so that no man or woman can boast. It's not done by our works or our effort or our scrubbing ourselves clean. It is a work done on us um, by God. God saves sinners and he does that by Christ in Christ's death on the cross. God saves sinners via Jesus Christ. And when I accept that offer, that is an unconditional promise that, that by putting my faith in him, I will be saved. I can't earn it. I can't lose it. Does that make sense? And so we, we champion that. And we love that. And we get excited about that in Scripture. And, and so then when we start talking about obedience... And about following the path, and about submitting, and about acknowledging God, and, and that there's somehow a response that comes from that, or that is earned from that, we get really confused and squeamish, don't we? We begin to think, well, you can't talk like that, because that sounds a lot like you're saying our relationship with God is earned. And we know it's not earned because no one can boast. It's, it's, it's because of Christ. And, but you're saying if you, if you live this kind of way, that, that this will happen and, and things will go well with you. That, that's not the formula. It's by grace, not by works. And we begin to get ourselves all confused and then, and then we don't know what to say anymore. And we don't know how to apply that to our life. But what's really going on is side by side there are two things happening. One we are saved by, by faith, and, and that's through, gra- uh, saved through grace by faith. I don't know. It's the same thing, meaning the same thing. It's the same thing, right? Um, grace and faith, they're there. We're saved that way, okay? And, and nobody can ever take that from us, and nobody can ever snatch us out of Christ's hand. However, what was one of Jesus' favorite words to use for his disciples? Obey. One of his favorite words to use for his disciples was obey. Jesus wasn't putting aside the law. He was fulfilling the law. He was saying the law can only do so much. And on top of that, we're adding grace because grace is then going to be sufficient. But it doesn't mean that there's no such thing as obedience anymore. That doesn't mean that there's no such thing as submitting and following. And that if you do that, God can make your path straight. That God can bless you. There's, there's no setting aside of that. That is a part of the Old Testament and the New Testament. That, that we obey and that in, in obeying we meet with the blessing of God. And so the health and wealth gospel understands correctly that there is a conditioned aspect to Scripture where if we obey God, there's a blessing. What they get wrong is naming what that blessing is and putting God in a box. That you're going to be healthy because Scripture talks a lot about because of creation groaning and because of other things that, that we will suffer and that we won't always be healthy, um, that we are going to waste away. And wealthy is not the promise that we see in the New Testament. The promise we see, the, the minimum and the only kind of promise we see in the New Testament, 
is for spiritual blessing, for joy and peace. What's the, what's the fruit of the Spirit? When we walk with the Spirit, it brings about the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit grows over time when we walk this path. And that fruit is love, joy, peace, patience. It's not 401K, Mercedes, big house in um, France. I don't know why I picked France. It's actually not a blessing. That's a curse. Uh, <laughs> Other better places. Um, do you see where, where the health and wealth gospel goes wrong? But what they're not getting wrong is that there's an if-then aspect. The whole book of Proverbs is if-then. It's that you can choose this way or you can choose this way. But if you choose this way and you go all into walking that path, the result is He, God, will make your paths straight. Does it mean your life is going to be perfect tomorrow? No. That's not what it's saying. He'll make your paths straight. Does it mean he's going to give you the right moment answer? Maybe. But it's so much more than the moment. It's an ongoing path that you walk. Does it mean you're going to be wealthy? I don't know. Maybe. But it's, that's not... That's not the real thing. Half the time, wealth is seen as a curse in Scripture, not a blessing. And, and a lot of you that lost homes and declared bankruptcy, um, some of you might not feel this way, but I know some of you did because you've told me that after the trauma goes away, you begin to go, wow, strange blessing in the middle of all that that I didn't see. I might not have chosen, but I didn't see because it's not always about wealth. It's not always about health even. What did, what did Paul say? Um, in the middle of his weakness, in the middle of pain, he learned that, his gra- that God's grace was sufficient. So in some sense, our weakness or even our health issues bring about a dependence on God that shows us that we truly can lean on God in all situations. And there's a joy and a freedom that emerges from that. So it's not all about health. It's not all about wealth. But in making straight our paths, we're promised peace. We're promised joy. We're promised the presence of God. We're promised relationship. We're promised freedom in Christ. And if we don't have a mindset for path, we get hung up on on points and moments. And every one of those moments is a decision between God's way and our way, and we get tyrannized by all those decisions. Because we might try one or two, or try, or halfway think about trying one or two, and if we don't see an immediate blessing at that point, we begin to despair. Right? I tried that at that point. I didn't really see much the next day. Did I do the right thing? Maybe I should revisit it. And when we live by the points, we're tyrannized by this constant, did I make the right decision or not? Should I, should I turn off or not? And we, we can't just rest in the fact that we're following God. And I think that that's why it says in Proverbs, don't envy the wicked. Don't envy sinners. I think what's crazy about Christians in America is because we're so caught up in cultural Christianity that we don't get the blessings of relationship. And when we don't get the blessings of relationship, we look at all our friends who are sinning and half the time we're jealous. Man, I wouldn't mind a little bit of that. 
how do I get a little bit better? You know, I mean, it's, uh, and the more we envy the wicked, the more we begin to try to have our cake and eat it too. And having our cake and eat it too is the worst of all positions to be in, in, in life. Because you end up on neither path. You, you don't end up on the skinny road. You don't end up on the wide road that leads to destruction. You end up between the two. A Christian that tries to pretend like he's still pursuing a relationship with God, but sneaking a few things over here and straddling it is like trying to sit between two chairs. You don't get to sit at all. It's like trying to drive uh, along the road, half on the road, half off the road. Fly on an airplane, half in the airplane, half out the airplane. Go up an elevator, half in the elevator, half out the elevator. You are the most to be pitied of all people if you, if you don't actually get to enjoy sin and just reject God. At least you have something there. Or you reject sin and you have God. You have the right thing. But when you have neither, your life really sucks. And I find that most of the people that come to me are there with a sucky life. And they don't realize it. They don't really trust God because if they did, they would let go of this and enter into this path that God would have for them. And when they come to me, they're coming to me going, help me feel, feel good about myself because I'm sinning. And tell me how God will, will bless my life in a few key points because I want that magic. And they're asking the complete wrong question. I, I find um, when I watch Terry Potter, not that I watch movies like that, but I, when I watch Terry Potter, there's a part of me that wants the magic. I want the wand. I want the magic. I want the spell that gives me the power to make life do really supernatural cool things for me at my behest. Anyone else want, want that? I want the power. And we look at Acts and we see uh, Simon the sorcerer was a dude that liked the power and then the disciples show up and they're able to cause like certain things to happen like miracles and by the power of the Holy Spirit. And Simon's like, I want that. How do I get that? Give me the wand. I want the wand. And Peter rebukes him with like one of the biggest rebukes ever. Just heaps it up on him and judges him. Says, absolutely not. You're completely missing this. Because you've got yourself so in the center of the whole thing. And we read that story and we go, what a jerk. And, and what, a, what a weird magician looking sorcerer dude doing the wrong thing. But then we turn and we look at the disciples who are following Jesus. And they were always asking for, I want, I want to sit at your right hand, Jesus. Hey, Jesus, when we come to your kingdom... Can I have this position of influence? Can I have that power? And they're doing the same thing. We're pursuing kind of a whole thing, looking, looking at it as if we're at the center of it to start with, and that everything else is some kind of magic formula to really magnify and give us our life. So we're standing between sin and, and God's path, and we're trying to say, which one's going to serve me the best? Which one's going to serve me the best this week? Or which one has failed me this week so that I'm going to turn to the other one? Or vice versa. And the whole thing starts with us at the center. And we get caught up in that. 
We want the magic. And what's really driving us is how am I going to control my life to bring about what I want most for my life? And I'm in charge. And I'm not submitting to, I'm not trusting, I'm not acknowledging. And when I'm not doing that, it's a conditional thing. I'm not going to have a straight path. And my life will hit bumps, and it'll hit uh, rocks, and it'll, it'll crash. And I'll wonder, why is God doing this to me? When the whole time, I'm only reaping what I've sown. The first four years of my Christian life were miserable. From a human standpoint, they were miserable. I was incredibly alone, and I white-knuckled half of the decisions in my life because I was committed to trying to follow God's way. And I was miserable, and I was lonely, but I was following God's path. And you want to know what began to happen over time? Little by little, year by year, things that I had done, directions I had gone, things I would submitted to began to slowly bear fruit in my life. And I got to a point where more and more I began to recognize God's blessing in my life and God's hand in my life. And it continued, and it continued, and it continued. And it continues to this day. I feel unbelievably blessed. And so I get into conversations with people, and here's the disconnect. I, I either hear directly or implied when I talk about long obedience long-suffering, walking the path, being on the journey. When I talk about that, the response I get is, that's easy for you to say. That's easy for you to say, Ken. Look at your life. Look at your life. Ken, you, you've got all these great things going, well, it's easy for you to obey. And you know what the, that, that voice is completely missing that I know from my own testimony? That it's, it's not just that my life is blessed or it's easy for me. It's, it's the same promise, the same conditioned covenant is given to every man and every woman. That if you follow, if you submit, if you acknowledge, if you don't lean on your understanding, if you walk by faith and live by faith and not by sight, God will bless you. It will look different in every life, but you will get the life somehow, someway, even if it's painful, that you wouldn't trade or that people would look at you and say, that's easy for you to say. Because God will be present in your life. Not always, but when you take the, the sum total of that path, that's where you're following the good shepherd. Um, If you turn to Psalm 37, we'll close with Psalm 37. As a dad, what I want most for my kids is good character and a relationship with God. There's probably almost nothing or, or, or only a small fractional kind of thing that I could do today that would be a drop in the bucket on that real dream of mine. Does that make sense? I mean, what am I really going to do today that's going to be the be-all, end-all for their character or their relationship with God? There's very little I could do today. Does that make sense? 
over time, I can maybe do a lot to help mentor and disciple my kids. What I hate about preaching is there's this assumption that you're going to walk up and give people the magic. That you're going to walk out today that somehow I gave you the wand. You're going to walk out today and by the end of today, your religious spiritual maturity, your character and your relationship with God is going to be magically different because, because I gave you the special sauce or the wand. And it doesn't work that way. Just like with my kids, a church or a congregation or us as Christians in this journey together as brothers and sisters, it is a long journey. We reap the, the, the fruit of what we sow over a long period of time. And in each day, something can be done, but it's a drop in the bucket. It's the process over that period of time. So I can't give you anything it's going to make the difference by tonight. But what I'm trying to tell you is I can give you something that will make the difference five years from now, ten years from now, fifteen years from now, when you're on your deathbed. Psalm 37 says this, Do not fret because of evil men or be envious of those who do wrong. For like the grass they will soon wither, like plants they will soon die away. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will do this. He will make your righteousness shine like the dawn, and the justice of your cause like the noonday sun. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret when men succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. Refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil. For evil men will be cut off. But those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. A little while and the wicked will be no more. Though, they look for, uh, though you look for them, they will not be found. But, and this is where Jesus gets this passage from in, in the Beatitudes. But the meek will inherit the land. And the promise is that they will enjoy great peace. The meek will inherit the land and enjoy great peace. Father, our prayer is that we would know and that we would be able to enjoy great peace in our surrender, in our submission, in our dependence upon you, that we would not seek to hold on to the own reins, find our freedom and independence, but that in all things we would acknowledge you and know the blessing of you making our path straight. We pray that in Jesus' name.